Energy, front and center, as tensions rise in the Middle East. We're live on the ground at the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference. The biggest names in the industry are here. Their take on the Iran threat, crude prices, and if energy can go from worst to first in your portfolio. A special edition of Fast Money, live from Miami, starts right now. And welcome from the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference live in Miami Beach, Florida. I am Brian Sullivan, and this is Fast Money. A little bit of a different look than the NASDAQ and Times Square, but we are still hitting all the stocks that you need, all the energy. And it is not just energy. It's also Tesla, PayPal, Square, a lot of stocks certainly to talk about. Hi, everybody. Your traders around the desk tonight are not here, but I still know who they are. They are Guy Adami. They are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Jeff Mills of Bryn Mawr Trust. All right, your top story obviously has been energy the last couple of days following the killing of the top Iranian general in Baghdad on Friday. We saw oil spike 3.5%. Guess what? The last couple of sessions, that has almost, not quite, but almost been wiped out. Why? Because the world is still awash, oversupplied in the price of oil. All day here at this conference, we have been speaking to the biggest names about exactly what's going on and why we did not see a bigger spike. We've chatted with the CEOs of Chevron, of Patterson UTI, the biggest drilling company, of Marathon Oil, their first interview, by the way, in more than five years. And Pioneer will be airing on Worldwide Exchange tomorrow. Let's talk more now about oil and gas as well. Speaking of Chevron, that stock fell today along with oil, not just because crude oil fell, but because Bank of America Merrill Lynch downgrading Chevron to an underperform. So, Guy Adami, my yes, friend, sir. I will put it to you. Are you surprised at like the question we asked every CEO here that the price of oil has not spiked higher given what happened on Friday? Well, Brian, enjoy yourself down there. Thanks for inviting us, number one. Number two, am I surprised? No, I don't, I'm not surprised because, you know, we saw something a couple months ago that was probably, in terms of percentage-wise, 50% worse than what we're seeing now. You had that big spike in crude, and it gave it all back within a week or so. So the crude oil market has showed its hands in terms of what could happen with risk, geopolitical or otherwise. So it doesn't surprise me. I think there are events in the future. I don't think this is over by any stretch of the imagination. But the crude oil sort of uh, laissez-faire attitude about this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and Brian, you know, if we think about also where global markets are, we, we have a couple things that are also very constructive, at least for the price of oil. They include a dollar that continues to weaken. Um, we, we've also had oil companies that I, I think you know, are starting to express, and this is something we're looking forward to talking about tonight on the show, uh, that they have a very different long-term approach to what was recently their short-term approach in terms of how they're managing their balance sheet and whatnot. But when it gets back to what we've seen in terms of geo political instability, what that's meant for both the, the economy, but what that's meant for the oil market. Yeah, been there, done that. I mean, we, we've, we haven't seen any supply disruption yet, and, and I think that's the bigger issue. And Tim, I think that's right. You know, you can't uh, hang your hat on what's going on with Iran. But interestingly, you saw this move in energy stocks. You saw this move in oil before the Iran news even dropped. So I think, for example, if you look at the equally weighted energy index, it's now above the 200-day moving average for the first time in 15 months. If you look at the energy sector, more more names are trading the new short-term highs. So you already saw short-term momentum. I think a lot of it does have to do with the dollar. The dollar peaked in October. Oil bottomed in October. Oil actually moved out of that narrow range before we heard about Iran. So I think there's a case to be made that you're seeing a mean reversion trade outside of what's going on in the Middle East. So I think you could actually see some follow-through. 
I'm thinking. Oh, okay, here's what I'd like to do, and I'll start Go with ahead. Karen on this. Karen, hold on for a second. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you quickly a couple of the bullish scenarios, higher prices, a couple of the bearish scenarios. Karen, I want you to say which one you think is the more compelling case, and we can kind of go around the horn on this. Let's talk about the bullish case. Number one, you just heard Jeff talk about it. The technicals, they look pretty good. OPEC, they're cutting production. There's actually slightly more demand than supply, if you believe the OPEC numbers right now. And, of course, the geopolitical risks. Iran has threatened to retaliate. We don't know what that means. Is it ships in the Strait of Hormuz, direct attacks in Iran or Saudi Arabia or both? That's the bullish side of the story. Global demand, by the way, getting a little bit better. The bearish case is that there are two to three billion barrels of oil in storage around the world. You've got continued U.S. production. And if we saw something knocked offline, Karen, we could have the Saudis probably ramp up another million to two million barrels a day like that. Which of those arguments do you find a little more compelling? Oh, that's a tough question. I'm not really sure. Could I go maybe somewhere in the middle, which I think for energy stocks, which have started to bottom, as you know, I think that a lower price of stable oil is actually better than a higher, spikier price that jumps around a lot, even if net-net it's higher for the quarter. So I think instability isn't good. Now, is that the bullish case or the bearish case? I'm not quite sure. I think that was the bearish one. Is that right? Instability? Listen, there, there is, yeah, but there is a middle ground, I would say, Guy Adami. I mean, you don't have to necessarily say prices are going to go higher or lower. If OPEC accomplishes what it wants, and if CEOs get what they want, what they want is a stable price of oil. You cannot run a company. You probably don't want to invest in an equity or a stock of an oil and gas company if you got a price that's $40 one year and $140 the next year. Right, which is something that we saw, obviously, a few years ago. I mean, I think you can make an argument that the price has been extraordinarily stable in the crude oil market for the last year or so. I mean, to me, the bull case is not necessarily in these big cap integrated names. You mentioned Chevron. I mean, multiples there don't make a lot of sense. I mean, Chevron's trading close to 18 times next year's numbers, maybe 9% EPS growth. I don't see a real compelling case there. The case is for names like, and obviously it's a story today, but a name like Apache that Tim has talked about. These names that are extraordinarily levered when they have just one hint of good news, when they get some sort of tailwind, these stocks move significantly. Apache, by the way, was a $19 stock a few months ago. It's now north of 32. Stocks move more than 50%, half of which had happened today. So, And there's still probably upside. So the bull case to me is the fact that these names have been some under the radar. They're levered. And again, any hint of good news, and these stocks go higher. Schlumberger, by the way, is another great example. Well, Guy, I'm, I'm happy. I was about, actually just about to mention that. We added to Schlumberger yesterday. I think it's a way to get closer to the head of the well and play for that bull case, because I do think that's more likely than oil selling off dramatically. So we like the name there. And there's a little bit of a cushion. We wouldn't buy the name just because of the high dividend yield, but you're talking about a 5% dividend yield in the name. So if oil does trend a little bit lower, we like it because there is some cushion. It, yeah, it, Brian, it sounds like you wanted to play a game from afar of would you rather. Yep. And, and when we talk about the bull bear case for, for, for the energy sector, for investing across the sector, there's obviously the fundamental story. Some of it's just a positioning story. The fact that, you know, I don't know the last time we ever did a show where we opened and we were dedicated to energy. I think it's good news because uh, if you think about how left for dead the entire energy sector has been, we've talked about the overall weighting as a percentage of the S&P. It's, it's, it's not been relevant because fund managers haven't needed to invest in it at four and a half times of, or four and a half percent of the overall S&P. It's getting to a place where uh, I think you've gotten to, and everybody knows the numbers in terms of the Three Sigma event, in terms of the underperformance that energy was for the last decade. 
Listen to the oil companies. You're doing that all day long. ConocoPhillips has a 10-year plan where they're talking about a very different approach to investing in their business. You have CEOs which are now being incentivized, not necessarily by growth at all costs, but actually on free cash flow. Yeah, that's right, free cash flow for oil and gas companies. So that's part of the argument. The argument on the bull side is that positioning just isn't there. So you don't need a lot and a lot in terms of the change of the approach. And two, the fundamentals here, forget the price of Brent or crude or whatever you're following. Um, The fundamentals for the sector have been forced to change, and that's good news for investors. Yeah, and ConocoPhillips, by the way, we talked to their chief operating officer. It's on CNBC.com. They said they're going to give back 30% of their free cash flow for the next decade to investors. Two quick things. Tim, good call. I tried to play a game. Everybody but you failed. Well, Karen (laughs) tried as well, so I'm never coming back. I'm never coming back. And by the way, coming up, we're going to get more stock picks with Goldman Sachs' Brian Singer. Two names on their conviction buy list. That's it, two names, and we're going to get to those. All right, this is a great transition. We just talked about oil and gas. Now let's talk about electric cars and Tesla, because not only do we have some mean dance moves from Elon Musk, but we also have some big news from Tesla in China. And for that, let's get to Phil LeBeau. Phil. It's a big day for Tesla in China because they have begun public deliveries, actually did it early this morning. And the event where they did it at the Gigafactory 3 plant just outside of Shanghai is also where we saw the video of the day. Yeah, you've seen it a few times, but you want to see it again. Elon's feeling the groove, decides, wait a second, somebody take the microphone here. Let me take off the jacket because I'm going to keep going here for quite a bit. This is part of the day that they had in China where they celebrated the beginning of public deliveries. There he goes. He hands over the microphone. Public deliveries of the Model 3. Elon Musk did also make some news over there saying that they expect to ultimately open up a design center in Shanghai, designing vehicles in China for China. Remember, it's the world's largest auto market. Meanwhile, when you take a look at shares of Tesla, I know that the moves are captivating, but let's take a look at shares of Tesla over the last three months. As they have moved higher, so have price targets that have been put out there by the analyst community. In September, they were at about $270. Now it's up to $344. That is the average price target that's out there. And then in terms of market cap, this is the story that's catching a lot of attention. Right now, Tesla is about $2 billion away from being worth GM and Ford, their market caps combined. Now, that's not enterprise value. That's a different story entirely. But in terms of purely market cap, Tesla is almost worth GM and Ford combined. Finally, Argus Research, the latest to go out with a new note today, raising its price target for Tesla. This target, $556. Brian? And those numbers on market cap, Phil, are staggering. But, you know, I think you know this and I know this and our audience probably knows this, but it bears repeating is that the reason that exists is even though GM sales are, what, six or seven times that of Tesla, so is their debt load. The debt weighs down the market cap. So that's not a pure yes. reflection of why, of Tesla's value. Right. It's that you've got to sort of subtract all the debt that Ford and GM have. And that's why people always say, look at the enterprise value. Because if you look at enterprise value, Ford is more valuable than General Motors. And I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, I, I want to say like $132, $134 billion. And then you've got Tesla all the way down at like $88, $89 billion, somewhere like that. Um, but that has been a point all day. Mike Santoli has been talking about this. Nonetheless, I think we're getting to the point, uh, Brian, where... 500 a share is not only a possibility, but could happen relatively soon. And remember, remember when Elon Musk's contract was redone and his compensation yeah. package, people said, 
you know, if he ever gets to a, a market cap of $100 billion, I can't remember exactly what his compensation is, but it's a big payday. That's not too far-fetched. They're only, what, $14 billion, no. $15 billion away from that. Yeah, and he could take just a tiny sliver of that money and go to dancing school. little Fred Astaire action. <laughs> Can't cost that much. <laughs> Phil Lebeau, yeah. thank you very much. All right, speaking of debt and Tesla, I know, Karen Feinerman, you've been doing a little bit of digging. Tesla has some debt. You found some some interesting things. Yeah, so one of the theses for the bears is the balance sheet. But let, when we look more closely at the balance sheet, they've got three tranches of convertible debt that have actually started to really trade up very sharply since the stock has moved so much. The reason is because these bonds convert into equity. And so you have $4 billion of three different tranches of convertible bonds. One converts next year, that's $1.4 billion, then $1.8, then another billion. So it's $4 billion that will convert if the stock is about 350 or higher over these various points over the next four years. So when you think about the balance sheet... That's $4 billion of debt that won't be there anymore. Now, there will be $4 billion of, we don't know exactly how much. Equity dilution. But equity. It's as if they're selling stock at the various strike prices of these converts. So if one of the bear's thesis of, you know, we've got a real balance sheet issue here, isn't there anymore, it seems to me that the target value, when you look at the upside, downside in the bear case, You've got to think that it's higher now. Now, at 460, I don't know that I'd be a buyer, but I think the risk of the balance sheet really being a problem has gone down significantly. And, and let me, I would jump in here too. And so Karen's right. And, and I'm, I'm someone that has been negative on the company based upon the balance sheet. And, and, and uh, you know, to continue at least in my somewhat cynical ways here, um, a handful of deliveries in China doesn't validate China demand. Uh, we've gotten a lot of discussion about a Chinese uh, gig factory, a new factory. Um, we still don't really know the details of that. Uh, the, the, the demand story for a company that's been slashing prices anywhere they can to seemingly front forward demand, I think it's still very much a question here. But look, Elon Musk should be dancing, whether cringeworthy or not, because this is a guy who has an enormous amount of his personal net worth tied up into this company, who's been massively levered to it, who has loans up against it. So he's got to be feeling great. He's got to be feeling a sense of relief. And yes, he is a CEO who's incented based upon the market cap of the company, whether the company is profitable or not. And effectively, this company's never been profitable. So, um, Yes, there's no question. This has been a, a extraordinary yeah. turnaround in the name, and, and I do think it's really about both balance sheet and let's see where demand is. Today, uh, you certainly get the sense that there is some relief. So I want to start by saying it's pretty clear that since October, you know, my lack of understanding in this stock is it's, it's palpable. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, this stock has gone basically from 320 to the current levels in a straight line. So I just want to put that out there. However, I'll say this. Now, if Tesla is a car company, I don't, I, we'll just play that game. It's now the most valuable car company in the history of the United States in terms of market cap, which Phil alluded to. I think this surpasses Ford, you know, 1999 or so, number one. Number two, the euphoria yeah. now around this stock is eerily reminiscent of all the things that were going on back in May when everybody's writing their death warrant when the stock was trading 175 yep. or so. So, you know, you have two ends of that spectrum. Again, I've been lost in the name 100%, but it feels as if in reverse what we're seeing today is basically what we saw in May on the downside. Yeah, and what, guy, guy, don't be so hard on yourself. Listen, I mean, we did this analysis on a different valuation perspective. I think it was last year 
on Power Lunch, which was, and I, I don't know exactly what the market cap or the number of cars sold for Tesla is, but I, it's got to be above what we did last year, which is that Tesla, I believe, is now valued at above a million dollars a car. Something like that on the cars sold. You look at Toyota valued at whatever, $35,000 per every car it sells. I mean, any type of sort of Graham and Dodd, Warren Buffett type analysis on Tesla is going to render this balance sheet. You're going to look at it, you know, sort of cross-eyed. But at the same time, there are stocks that we have seen in our collective lifetimes that don't have to make sense to succeed, do they? No, it's true. And this, listen, and right now this has proven to be one of those stocks. Again, I'll say, you know, for the last month and a half, two months, completely lost. But just be careful out there. Again, I say for emphasis, you know, the euphoria we're feeling now is very reminiscent of what we were feeling back in May when everybody was calling for the stock to trade, you know, in, in the lo- below $100 a share. Yeah, good stuff, Guy Dami. All right, good discussion there on Tesla. All right, coming up. We're going to go back here live at the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference in Miami Beach, Florida. A couple of great guests. Goldman Sachs has just two oil and gas stocks, two on their conviction buy list. We're going to hear those names from Brian Singer coming up. Also, Chenier Energy, LNG. You talk about global, you talk about the world. Nothing more global than LNG. Also, the stock ticker for Chenier and the CEO, Jack Fusco, coming up as well. A lot more to do on Square and PayPal and the overall markets. And we're back on Fast Money right after this. And welcome back to an Eastern Seaboard version of Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan at the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference in Miami Beach, Florida. We've got Guy, Tim, Jeff, and Karen. They're all back at the NASDAQ market site. My apologies. Next time, we'll all come down here. All right, we are joined now by Brian Singer. He is the head of energy equities for Goldman Sachs. This is really, in many ways, your conference. So thank you for having CNBC here exclusively as the broadcast partner. We appreciate that. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so before we get into some of your picks, you've got just two names on your conviction buy list that are the traders have questions as well. Day one, keynotes. We spoke to CEOs. You've talked to them publicly, privately. What would you say are the one or two big themes slash takeaways of today? Look, I think uh, this is a scenario where right now oil prices are much higher today relative to where both the companies and investors thought they would be just a month ago. And so one of the big issues that we're facing at the conference is, are we seeing producer discipline among the shale producers? Are we going to see producers begin to increase activity or are they going to use the incremental free cash flow or cash flow from oil prices for free cash flow to return to shareholders? And the bottom line is the message that we're hearing across our panels and from management is that discipline is holding, which I think is going to help improve energy equity sentiment. Yeah, I think most of these companies seem to have 50 to 55 as sort of their benchmark on their balance sheet. You know, Guy Adami, the most amazing thing that we heard today, and we had a lot of interviews, came from Chevron. I asked Michael Worth, I said, for every $1 that the price of Brent crude goes up, approximately how much does that add to your cash flow? $450 million a year, something like that. I mean, the numbers for just an incremental dollar are staggering. Does this then, at 68 on Brent, 63 on WTI, just really add to a story that's been tough the last few years. Yeah, look, I think there are a number of higher quality producers like an EOG and a Chevron uh, where we think their incremental cash flows can be very significant. EOG is one of the stocks that we like. Uh, They are super levered uh, to the higher oil prices, among others. And one of the reasons that we like them is you don't have to believe in oil prices of today. We think that even in a 60 to $65 type Brent oil world, they can get mid-teens production growth 
double digit corporate returns and still have low to mid single digit free cash flow yield. So okay, there's really a the lot traders, that they can do. Get the traders in here in a second. But there's, so there's two names that you have on your conviction buy. You have some buys, but your conviction buy yeah. list, you've got two names. And that is EOG and Pioneer Natural Resources, yeah. PXD, which is interesting because those are the two companies I hear often among the mid-majors that I talk, people say, those are the best management teams in the business, yeah. Bill Thomas and Scott Sheffield. Now, earlier today, we spoke with Scott Sheffield. The interview will air tomorrow morning on Worldwide Exchange. Scott, who, by the way, spent much of his childhood in Iran, his dad worked mm-hmm. for an oil company, thought the escalations would increase, and he is calling for 10 to $15 higher prices for oil. Listen to this and then have you respond. Yeah. We'll probably see a higher price. Uh, we're probably going to see another $10, $15 on top of where it is now. So I'm probably more optimistic. There's no extra supply in the world. The U.S. is no longer that supply like they have been the last several years. Uh, and so we're going to see a higher price for the price of oil. All right, so Brian, if Scott Sheffield is right and prices go up another 10 or 15, what happens to these equities? Well, look, if, if it's a sustainable increase in price, then you have a lot of equities that are going to move higher um, because there's, the, the equity sentiment today is not reflecting the prices of today, let alone 10 to $15 higher on a sustainable basis. But the bottom line is our base case view is we don't think that this is an all hands on deck moment for shale producers. We think that really we don't need every company's balance sheet to be restored. We don't think every company needs to grow aggressively. So it's really the companies that are low on the cost curve, like a pioneer, doesn't need the higher oil prices, 10 to $15 higher from here, can grow 15%, can have mid-double-digit or can have teens-type corporate returns and still have free cash flow like EOG. Guy Adami, Mr. Goldman, get in here. Brian Singer, thanks for being here. Brian Sullivan, in, in the Would You Rather game, we would rather be in Florida. That's a different game. But, Brian, my question to you is, EOG was got cut in half from October 2018 till this October, 130 to 65. The stock has had a pretty significant move. If crude were to go sideways for the next month and a half, is this a stock that can still accelerate, in your opinion? Yeah, we think it can because we think we're in a bottoming phase for energy equities. And it's driven by two factors that we have not seen over the last year to two years. Number one, we think from a micro perspective, free cash flow yields are improving and are a lot more competitive with the S&P 500 as our corporate returns. And EOG is a leader in both of those. Second, we think we're moving to a period post-2020 where we no longer need OPEC to need to lower production. We actually may need OPEC to need to raise production. And so that has the potential without an increase in oil prices from here to improve energy equity sentiment for the high-quality companies, and we think that can reverse some of the milling performance of EOG. Tim? Hey, Brian Singer, thanks for joining us, and congrats on what I hear has been a great conference down there. EOG, which you like, uh, perversely, some of the criticism around this company is that they're actually not levering their balance sheet more. I mean, they've talked about uh, some urgency or there's been uh, some sense that they wanted to buy back shares, that they actually wanted to do stuff to increase kind of the, the, the earnings leverage in the company. Can you talk about that? Because that seems rather contrary to a sector that's been laden with debt and companies that have been making you know, poor allocations of capital. 
Yeah, and I would agree with the assessment as it relates to a lot of the other companies. Um, but we think that companies that can prove that they are low on the cost curve using 10Ks and 10Qs that have good corporate level returns, that have free cash flow, and by growing do not sacrifice their advantage in any of the above, should have the opportunity and the right to grow. There aren't very many companies in that mix, but EOG, we think, is one of them. Now, this year, particularly if prices hold at these levels or higher, um, then there actually may be an opportunity for EOG to do more than that and buy back some stock. All right, Brian Singer, we're going to let you go. Thank you very much. Head of Energy Equities, thanks. We'll let you get back to your conference. Great. I think it's the cocktail party time of the night. We're, We're invited. We'll go after the show's over. I'm happy to see you. Brian, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know, it's interesting, guys. We're talking about Pioneer, and we had Scott Sheffield on. We're looking at numbers, and everybody always wanted to know what's the break-even cost. I think what's amazing, Jeff Mills or Karen, about Pioneer is their break-even cost is $20 a barrel, maybe $21 a barrel. They've got the best acreage, the lowest cost. And by the way, their net debt to EBITDA ratio, 0.3% when half the industry is trading at more than two times net debt to EBITDA. Not all oil and gas balance sheets are created the same. No, and I think these are the kind of names you want to play. You know, thinking about EOG as an example, you know, they have a low cost structure. They source their own fracking material. They do their own prospecting. If you look at free cash flow yield, it's 4 to 5%. So I think those are the names you want to be in when the price of oil is uncertain. We don't know if it's going to go up or down from here. So I think being in those names that aren't levered to materially higher oil prices and have that lower cost structure, I think that's where I would want to be right now. I agree. I think the risk reward is compelling when you have a low cost operator if the market, if the prices trade down. But also, as the whole space moves up, it'll attract more money. And where are they going to go first? They'll go to quality. And so you're going to be better on an upside there, too, in an EOG or Pioneer like that. All right. A good discussion there on energy. All right, guys. Thank you very much. We are just getting started here. Here's what else is coming up on Fast Money. We're counting down to big bank earnings, and analysts are keeping busy making calls on the financials. We'll break down the winners and losers this season. Plus, the chip wars are heating up, with AMD taking a jab at Intel in a big way. But which semi-giant will come out on top? All that and more when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We have got a couple of big calls on the big banks. UBS downgrading both J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America to hold to really to neutrals today. This just the latest in a string of downgrades for the banks. Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo have all been taken down a notch over the past couple of days. Now, we are Tim Seymour. Just one week from kicking off the big bank earnings season. As you look at it, who might be some of the winners and some of the losers with the big financials going forward. Well, it, it's refreshing to get back to fundamentals, and banks always are, you know, they're, they're the rallying cry. We get back to rolling up our sleeves and doing bottom-up work. And if you look at banks who vastly outperformed in 4Q um, in an environment where, if anything, you're going to see compression in net interest margins. You've actually seen loan books pull back a little bit. You've seen some of the uh, kind of the euphoria of the refinancing boom come off the top. So uh, with multiples on the P.E. side as high as they've been in five to ten years, it's not a great environment to be going after banks. Having said all that, again, these are banks 
who have pristine balance sheets on a relative basis. These are banks that are paying 25 to 3% dividend yields, yes. And these are banks that I think people are starting to look at as being more aggressive in an environment where the consumer is still what's driving this economy. I, I don't think you have to run into bank earnings. Typically, what we've seen is that banks have actually underperformed on the announcements, and then they've kind of caught up into the rest of the earnings season. I think that's what we're going to get here. And this is a really important level for banks. You know, they broke out of that 2018, 2019, excuse me, range. But now, again, they're testing it on the downside. So I think holding these levels is really important. I'm a little bit more positive on the earnings front, though, looking out further into 2020. I'm still a believer in the steeper yield curve story. You know, I think as we see better economic data abroad, if you look at the city surprise index in Europe, it continues to make new highs. I think as that happens and rates rise in Europe, you're going to see the term premium increase here in the U.S. That releases the pressure valve just a little bit on longer term rates here. And I think you can see the curve steepening so that it ends up a little bit of a better environment for earnings for banks. And if you look at the KBE, for example, 12 times earnings, I think it's still okay, And you're about 10 percent below previous highs. So I think you have some room to play here. Well, I think that scenario you laid out, if you see around the world, I think, improve, then I think Citibank is the place you want to be relative to Bank of America, J.P. Morgan um, and Citi of those big three, because I think they have the most exposed around the world and they're the cheapest multiple on a price to earnings and on a price to book. And as much as I love Jamie Dimon, yes, you and do. I do, yes, you do. I do. I can understand that call that, you know, J.P. Morgan here, it's, it's no longer the bargain basement that it was... 30 points ago, 40 points ago. So I still like it. I'm not going to sell it, but it's hard to, you know, pound the table and say, this is an incredibly compelling value. I still like the name. It's a premier franchise. It deserves a premier valuation. But I think there's potentially more upside in City and probably Bank of America. Yeah, maybe in City. I mean, Goldman added the conviction by yesterday, $88 price target. I think City reports on the 14th, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, anytime the stock sort of gets north of book value, it's been a sell, just like when it got below tangible book. I think in October it was a screaming buy. The name that we've talked about that continues to go higher uh, and make all-time highs is Blackstone, which reports at the end of the month. And I think that's the name of the financials you want to stay with, Brian. All right, a good discussion there on the big banks and financials. I know it's going to be a very busy week for bank earnings next week. All right, coming up, Kindler, gentler CEOs. Not really. AMD taking a bit of a jab at Intel at the Consumer Electronics Show. We're going to tell you about that. Plus, it is about booze and cannabis constellation brands. Their earnings out tomorrow morning. What is the options market saying about what you can expect from those industries? We're going to find out. We'll talk about both those things. AMD, STZ, next on Fast Money. All right, welcome back. Well, here in Miami, we've been talking energy, but out west in Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show, 170,000 people are talking technology. And fair to say that the semiconductor, the chip wars, they are heating up. Let's get more now on that with Josh Lippin in San Francisco. Josh. So, Brian, one analyst I spoke to called it the biggest news yet at CES. AMD CEO Lisa Su taking the stage there at the conference, introducing new high-performance chips for laptops, taking aim squarely at Intel. And AMD saying its chips outperform the competition. Laptops with these processors will ship in Q1 from vendors like HP, Dell, and Lenovo. This comes as AMD stock is on a remarkable run here, surging more than 130% 
4% over the past 12 months. Question for investors, how much of the good news is now priced in at these levels? Tech analyst Patrick Moorhead, a former AMD exec, says Lisa Sue's company has the edge when it comes to chips for consumer desktops and laptops. But he asks, does AMD have the resources to really market its advantages against a giant like Intel that he says is an open question? Intel is a big company with vast resources and dominant market share. Lisa Su also unveiled new graphics cards at CES. There she is really taking on NVIDIA. Those cards are meant to speed up PC gaming. Moorhead bets AMD will pick up some share there, but he says NVIDIA remains the preferred option for hardcore gamers right now. Guys, back to you. All right, Josh Lipton, Josh, thank you very much. Let's trade this here, Jeff Mills, because, I mean, these charts have been, what do you guys call it, parabolic for some of these semiconductor names? Do you like the call? Do you see any more gains ahead, given how much money's been made in just the last couple of months? Yeah, look, I still like the space. You know, the 5G rollout's been sort of well-documented, but then you have the video game console upgrade cycle in 2020 as well, so I think that might tighten supply even further. And if you're talking about AMD, Intel, I'll do a little self-would-you-rather here. I would rather AMD. You know, Intel has not been able to break out from those 2018 highs, and if you look at their revenue pie specifically, it's PCs, it's data centers, and they have big market share there, but they're losing it to companies like AMD, NVIDIA. There are new chips being introduced. There's cloud. So I I would rather be in a company like AMD than Intel. I think Intel has to kind of run quickly to catch up here a little bit. Well, and I hear you, and I think it's, you know, AMD certainly has the ability to take the fight to, to Intel based upon what's going on, and they're, they're, they're touting that their graphics chips are 18% faster. When you think about high-end cloud computing and the ultra-thin laptop world that's out there, this is a place that's very good for AMD. But you get back to Intel, and you get back to a valuation that I can sleep with, and, and a company that, to me, is very well-positioned across the entire space. I think if you if you really want to be conservative, I know it sounds crazy after the run, take a look at Taiwan Semi. I mean, this is the, the, the leader in essentially the white-label chips for the entire industry, and I think these guys continue to see demand. We're getting updates in terms of where they see their current inventory status. It looks pretty good from here. All right, guys, good discussion there on the chips. All right, coming up, we're going to stick with energy, but a different kind. 20 years ago, the United States exported approximately zero liquefied natural gas. In three years' time, we are likely to be the global export leader, led in part by that company, Chenier Energy, and their CEO will join us about this amazing trend next. All right, welcome back here to Fast Money Live at the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference in Miami, Florida. We've been talking a lot about oil and gas. Let's switch it up a bit. Let's talk about LNG, liquefied natural gas, and also talk about LNG, which is the stock ticker of our next company. That is Chenier Energy and the CEO, Jack Fusco, joining us now here live. Jack, we do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Brian. We've been asking the CEOs, most of them are sort of oil-ish CEOs, <clears throat> were they surprised at the lack of response in the crude market given the news in Iran and Iraq on Friday with the killing of Soleimani? Yeah. We did not also see a movement in gas prices. Are you surprised by that? Uh, I'm very much surprised on the worldwide uh, LNG market since 25 percent, give or take, of all of LNG in the world comes from the Qataris. And that would get stranded potentially if there was a problem with the the Strait of Formes. Yeah, and and that's the most amazing and maybe important thing is that that little stretch of water where we've had ships get mined. In fact, the British just sent some warships there a couple of days ago to help escort these things. 25 percent of the world's LNG, yeah. that powers lights, is coming through there. Why do you think the market didn't react? 
You know, I, there, there seems to be a little bit of a supply and demand dislocation right now. Uh, a lot of supply hit the market this year. Uh, it's being absorbed. Uh, but, you know, I think eventually when it gets a little bit tighter, when something like uh, geopolitical happens like that, trade tensions, war, um, we're, we're going to see a much bigger response, and price you think, response. Do you, do you anticipate those things happening? <laughs> I hope not. not but, I hope but, not. But yeah. you have to plan. Well, we plan. We, uh, as you know, Brian, our customers Lower, right? sign long-term contracts with us. So we, we have to provide uh, LNG uh, for the next 20 to 25 years, basically, all around the world. So We're seeing supply, as you just noted, grow. We're expected to see more supply growth. There's all these huge, we've talked about it. There's about 20 plants that are either in project phase or actively under construction. Yeah. What does that mean for Chenier? I mean, can the world absorb all this extra natural gas? The price of LNG, dollars per thousands of metric ton, has already come down and kind of stayed low to flat the last couple of years, Jack. Yeah. So there's a structural shift, right, from cleaner uh, to cleaner burning fuels. And liquefied natural gas. Natural gas is a fuel of choice, and it's going to stay that way for a long time. And as you mentioned, the growth has been phenomenal. So we've seen per annum over 5% per annum growth in, in LNG demand. Uh, that's forecast to continue to be that way till 2035. And we're seeing a lot of infrastructure being built to support that. So new gas-fired power plants, um, new liquefaction uh, regas terminals to receive the LNG, a lot more shipping capacity. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to see nat gas and LNG around for a long time. And I know the traders will have a comment on this, but I'll, I'll wrap it up. Wall Street loves your stock. There's, I think, 23 analysts that cover your name. 21 have a buy, two have a hold. There are zero sells. Your guidance was pretty good in November. Everyone's anticipating EBITDA growth. You've got a tall task to please the street. Do you think you can pull that off? Well, we've guided the street in 2020 to another billion dollars of EBITDA growth, which is about 33% over where we were, what we guided in 2019. So we have significant growth as our contracts become, uh, um, get sanctioned. And, uh, you know, we try to, you know, under-promise and over-deliver. And uh, hopefully that's why uh, they like us yeah, so much. Jack Fusco, Chenier, LNG is the ticker. Jack, a real pleasure. Thanks for taking some time for us here. Good to see you again. Thank you. Karen Feinerman, 33% expected EBITDA growth year over year. It's sounding like a technology company, not a company that, that exports compressed natural gas. Well, they've done a phenomenal job. And, I mean, the capacity growth has been incredible. And I think we'll continue to see LNG demand grow around the world. At least that's the way I've been betting. Um, so I like the space longer term. Uh, you know, in the past year, it hasn't been great. It's improved a little bit the last couple of months. But uh, for me, I'm in Golar, which is another uh, LNG play. But they've done an extraordinary job at Chenier. All right, Karen Feynman, Karen, thank you very much here. Uh, we got a market flash from what I understand with Mr. Frank Collin. Frank, what do you got for us? Hey there, Brian. You know, shares of Luckin Coffee, often thought of as the Starbucks of China, falling more than 5% after the company announced a 12 million share secondary offering. More than 7 million of those shares will come from the company itself. That represents about 3% of total shares. Nearly 5 million shares will come from another shareholder that is not being disclosed. The IPO lockup for Luckin Coffee that launched its IPO last year in May of 2019, that expired in November. So again, shares of Luckin falling more than 5% after the company 
company said, uh, it, excuse me, announced a 12 million share secondary offering. Uh, the company, again, very hot this year, up about 96 percent over the last year. Back over to you. Yeah, but falling a little 5% there. Frank Holland, thank you very much for bringing us that. Tim, you're our emerging market specialist. I I mean, listen, can you get upset about a 5% drop after hours after a nearly double on the year on Luckin? No. Um, And and if you think about it, this is not only a China play, but it's a smart hedge fund play. I mean, the the folks that own the stock and have been riding the stock from where it IPO'd, uh, again, this was a stock that was a $17, $18 stock in November, uh, deck 31 at a high of 40 bucks. Uh, But Lone Pine, uh, if you think about Morgan Stanley Asset Management, you've had a number of the big stocks. I'm just looking down here. Tiger Global. You have a major hedge fund force in here, and it doesn't surprise me that there would be a push for some kind of liquidity at those major levels. And again, a convert. So by the nature of people that are playing convert ARB, they're actually shorting the stock as the minute these things come out or even in advance of. So uh, this entire movement based upon the move in the stock, the players involved, and how these yeah. stocks tend to react to this, this is according to script. All right, Tim Seymour. Tim, thank you very much. Unlucky luck at coffee. Well, Tim, we know that you like coffee. Yes, we I also do. know that you like cannabis. Yes, Investing. I do. So Investing. coming up after the break, we're going to talk about Constellation <laughs> Brands, their earnings out tomorrow. What is the options market saying about it? We're going to find out after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Well, tomorrow morning, it is really all about booze and cannabis because Constellation Brands numbers are out. What is the options market saying about what to expect? Let's find out here now with the options. Action is Mike Co. Mike. Yeah, so Constellation Brands saw about two times the normal options volume when we were taking a look at this earlier today. Right now, the options market is implying a move higher or lower of about $9.5. That's about 5% of the current stock price. That might seem like a lot, but actually relative to the eight-quarter average of 6.5% or so, that's actually relatively low. And over the last four quarters, we've actually seen average moves of over 7%. However, not everybody is betting on a muted move. We did see a buyer of the January 202.5 strike, 215 strike call spread. The buyer of that call spread is betting that the stock could rise above that 202.5 strike by at least the 60 cents that they paid for that. That would represent an increase of about 8.5% from where the stock is trading just to break even. And you could see as much as a move of 16%. That's essentially the highest point that this person would be betting on when they make that bullish bet. Now, as we take a look at what they might be betting on, just take a look at the last earnings quarter, a big disappointment. Essentially, they're making the bet that the stock could recover back to those prior levels. One other thing I would point out is that earnings has typically seen elevated levels of volatility. Taking a look at the last couple of years, you can see that there are some points here where we see some elevated volatility. Almost every one of those was as a result of earnings. So a very low probability bet, but we have seen moves of this magnitude in the past. All right, Mike Coe on Constellation Brands. Mike, thank you very much. All right, Tim Seymour, listen, Constellation, right up your wheelhouse, but kind of a disappointing stock the last year. Well, it, they've certainly they've, they've taken on a lot in, in their canopy growth, uh, you know, majority position here. And they've certainly gone through some growing pains being very early. Remember, this is a company that has been a pioneer growing in emerging markets and in this case, a new asset class. So I think it's right up their alley. And if you think about where the consensus EPS is on the company for the quarter, it's around 186. Um, some of that doesn't reflect uh, where you actually had canopy growth report on November 22nd, about a 50 million dollar loss, which I, I think is going to weigh in on these shares. Their core beer business has never been healthier. You 
you can make an argument, especially when you consider headwinds other people are having. They've seen some pull off in their wine and spirits business. The Gallup transaction is very good for this company. I think 2020, it sets up very well. And I think they have endured a lot of pain in cannabis for being early. And I think that's going to pay off. I am long the stock. I do believe in the management team here. And I think it's something you should look at. All right. Tomorrow morning is a big day for STZ. Tim, thank you very much. Just a reminder, everybody, you can catch the full Options Action Show. It is every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to walk you through all kinds of trades, learn about options and ways to make money. Coming up, speaking of making money, your final thoughts and final trades right after this. All right, welcome back. It is that time. Final trades. Let us go around the horn. Tim Seymour, why don't you kick it off for us? We talked a lot about luck. And how about the company chain, Starbucks, which certainly has been a little bit rocky into the end of 4Q. But the valuation, I don't think terrible. Somewhere around 28, 29 times, I think this management team is built to win. Starbucks. Karen. Yes. Well, keeping on the energy theme, which you're doing today, of course, Golar LNG, which we just talked about briefly. I like what they're doing. The stock has really not performed well, but I think yep. they're going to add capacity. I think we're going to see additional EBITDA there as well. Golar. Golar. All right, Jeff. I think Facebook looks interesting here. It looks like it's about to break out from a two-year base here and at 33 times forward earnings, certainly a lot better than the five-year average, average at about 50 times Facebook. Macy's has been a rocket ship since that Goldman downgrade in early December, Brian. Thanks for the invite. All right, guys, thank you very much. Appreciate it, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad Money begins right now.